Welcome to the AOCPP podcast, the podcast brought to you by the Association of Child Protection Professionals, where we, alongside expert guests, discuss important issues within child protection and safeguarding. There has never been a more important time to keep up with child protection and safeguarding, but with regulation frequently changing, we realise not all professionals have the time to do so. That's why we've created this podcast, to give you what you need to stay informed. Every week, we'll be inviting child protection professionals with expertise in either research or practice to share their learnings. In each episode, we'll be taking a focused look at a singular issue that you need to know about. These are often specific and urgent, so we'll be talking with a professional at the forefront of the issue. Hello and welcome to the next of our Association of Child Protection Professionals podcasts. My name's Peter Seibotham. For those of you who don't know me, I'm a paediatrician and academic in child health at the University of Warwick. And for some time now, I've been a trustee of the association and also editor, co-editor with Jane Appleton of our scientific journal, Child Abuse Review. And I'll be your host for today. In today's episode, I'm going to be talking to Drs. Gabrielle Otterman and Vince Paluski about our very recently released special issue and upcoming virtual conference on abusive head trauma. So, yeah, it's really exciting to be able to introduce you to Gabby and Vince. And I wonder, Gabby and Vince, both of you, would you mind giving our listeners a, a quick introduction to yourselves and your experience? Gabby, shall we start with you? Well, it's a delight to, to be here, be part of this podcast and the conference and the work on the special issue. I'm a pediatrician, originally from the United States, trained in uh, Harvard Medical School in Boston and in the area of uh, child maltreatment, where there were uh, early uh, fellowship programs. And I've been living and working in Sweden for the past 17 years, where this area of practice has been developing. I'm a clinician at heart. I still care for children of all ages, of 0 to 18. And um, I'm a medical director at uh, Uppsala University Children's Hospital for the Multidisciplinary Child Protection Team. So um, child maltreatment is, uh, is in my daily practice. Great. Thank you. And Vince, how about yourself? Tell us a bit about you. Hello, everyone. I'm Vince Pelusi. Thank you very much for the chance to join you from across the pond. This is a very exciting thing for me as well. And uh, with Dr. Otterman and Dr. Seidbotham, it's been a, a delight. I think the word is delight to uh, be working on this project as well as the special issue and the articles and everything involved with it. I'm also a general and child abuse pediatrician. I trained in New York City. I left to go into private practice and then later became an academic, quote unquote, and actually a child abuse pediatrician in Michigan for a number of years and returned here about a dozen years ago. So I'm a professor at the NYU Grossman School of Medicine in New York City and also the chair of the Child Protection Committee at Hassenfeld Children's Hospital, which is our NYU hospital affiliate. But I'm sitting today at Bellevue Hospital in New York City and wish everyone well out there and would love to talk more about what this special issue contains. It's very exciting. Thank you, Vince. Um, yeah, as, as Vince said, it's, it has been a real delight to work on this uh, special issue. I've, I've had the privilege of knowing Vince and Gabby for some time now and just been really impressed with both of them, their passion for uh, working with children and families, 
a commitment to evidence-based practice, to connecting both research and practice and training. So really excited when they agreed to take on this special issue. Just to uh, give you a bit of background to the special issue, as the association's journal, we publish a special issue each year on an important topic relating to safeguarding children. And this year we decided to focus on abusive head trauma and invited Vince and Gabby to be our guest editors. In this recently released issue, we've brought together leading academics and practitioners to share their research, focusing on areas of recognition, response and prevention. So I wonder if I can ask the two of you both to reflect on why this is such an important topic and what motivated you to volunteer to be a guest editor for our special issue. Vince, how how about you? Well, when uh, Dr. Seidbotham, when you you reached out to suggest that there might be the opportunity to work on a special issue in abusive head trauma, my interest was immediately picked and I got actually very excited because we've all seen cases, we've all taken care of children who have unfortunately suffered from this terrible preventable illness. And part of what we do is try to understand the illnesses that affect children in child abuse, neglect, and pediatrics more broadly. The science in child maltreatment in general and abusive head trauma in particular is extensive and longstanding. You can go back in medicine for many years. So when when we said, let's look at what's new and exciting, it turns out that the opportunity to, number one, ask people to publish more research, and number two, to then go through it, uh, was quite an amazing feat. And when you look in this special issue, you're going to see the amazing work that's being done around the world. So how could I say no to the association? How could I say no to Dr. Seidbotham? And then how could I say no to Dr. Ottoman? I, I agree. When I was uh, invited by you to participate in this uh, undertaking uh, now over a year ago, I was um, honored and delighted uh, as a consumer of the research that is so necessary for our uh, work in this field. I thought it would be an exciting learning experience to help engage our colleagues literally from around the world and invite them to publish their original work. And I think like Vince and Peter, no doubt, we all remember, those of us who are clinicians working in this field, remember the first case of abusive head trauma. And one of these cases, um, one of these children that uh, was severely injured during my, when I was a registrar, when I was a resident, I'll never forget, it was actually brought me into this field. And and understanding how uh, many missed opportunities for the diagnosis and prevention we see in our daily practice. And these are at elite institutions in high-income countries. And we're just beginning to work systematically with uh, the diagnosis and care and prevention of abusive head trauma. Our initial concerns were how many colleagues would we be able to have submit their original research? 
And you know, it was somewhat optimistic, but it turns out we had, I think, what can be considered a, a good output in our uh, special issue. And the span across the globe is really impressive and amazing. It was, and being part of it as an, as an associate editor was a real uh, learning experience. And under the guidance of Peter and Dr. Pelusi, it was really a, a, a wonderful experience that would be good to reflect over and to present as a group. I'm so looking forward to it on Wednesday when we have our online conference. Yeah, thank you, Gabby. And uh, I think yeah, really helpful to, to bring it back to, to our practice. I think all three of us will be able to reflect on cases that, that we've dealt with and, and children that we've seen, who, including children who have died, because of abusive head trauma, but, but also those who have survived, sometimes with quite severe and ongoing disabilities. And some of the dilemmas that we faced as clinicians when confronted with a family in whom you, you, you recognize that there's a possibility that this child has been abused. So tying this into the realities of everyday practice, and at the same time trying to explore some of the research around it, and you're absolutely right that we've had a, a record number of submissions for this special issue. And as you mentioned, Gabby, from really across the, the globe, we've got papers in the special issue from the UK, the United States, Australia, Germany, France, and Taiwan. I think that's probably it, plus yourselves from the States and Sweden as well. So really very exciting to be able to do that. The special issue is available online. You can find it through the association website or searching under Child Abuse Review. The editorial itself and all the abstracts are open access, so anybody listening could easily get hold of those. And all the papers are freely available to download for members of the association. So really encourage you, if you're not yet a member of the association, we do still have uh, currently a, a, an offer of free membership. So do take a look and consider that and have a look at the papers themselves and see you'll, you'll find a lot there that's worth dipping into. Vince, I wonder whether perhaps you could give us a bit of an overview of the special issue and what, what we've included in it. We've divided it into three overall sections. So tell us a bit about that. Well, Dr. Seidbotham, it became apparent that we did have a lot of fantastic articles to look at, and they seemed to coalesce in three different areas. And so when we were working on this, it became apparent that we could group certain articles together for a couple of reasons. Number one, that they spoke about similar areas of a particular facet of abusive head trauma, but also because even within those areas, there was a diversity in methods, in uh, sample populations, in parts of the world. And so it, it was pretty actually self-evident to us that these three areas really, they called to us and said, we want you to put us together like this. It almost was like they told us exactly what they wanted to do. And the first area, as an epidemiologist, I of course have to have the first area being epidemiology. And so epidemiology is more than just counting. It's also the description of clinical impact. So the three articles in that section really look at particular facets of abusive head trauma. The first article being uh, looking at the identification in France. 
what the, the authors say is, is likely the first published study looking at the epidemiology of abusive head trauma in France over several years, followed by another population-based study out of Washington state. So that we then mix a state in the U.S. with a country in Europe. And as we go through these, we start to see these differences in methods, these differences in approaches, but very similar results as you look at the numbers that are generated from different parts of the world, which we concluded were more similar than not, despite those major differences. You know, for example, definitions, there were definitions of probable versus possible, but the articles really expand upon how, how does one start to define this and how does one count this? And then in a third study in that section, how does one figure out what it costs, not just to a society, not just to a health system, uh, which are important numbers, but what is the cost of family? You know, a family who has to pay this out of pocket or, or who has health insurance, and how do you count those costs? And what is the devastation uh, both to the child medically, but also to the family financially? And that rounds out that section. The second section we called etiology and diagnosis, because there again, we have these issues with how does a physician, how does a multidisciplinary team, how does society identify these cases? And it turns out that there are similarities and differences in how one could do this. Uh, the first article by Chen and Feng really look at a tool to assess do healthcare professionals really understand this and how might they then use their specific information to better identify the cases. And the development of that tool is both country specific, but also applicable as one would be to use to develop across the world in different articles. Again, think about the challenges that we face in detecting these cases. While we all have seen these cases and take care of children with abusive head trauma, they're often missed. And so the next two articles talk about these signs and symptoms that may be missed and talk about how we might improve our identification. Now, one of them is a retrospective case review of young children looking for certain criteria, certain things that were missed. And the second from Australia looks at cases from a child protection team, starting with kids who have head trauma, and then trying to figure out what are the key discerning factors one could use to identify abusive head trauma or not. So these articles don't say that we can't make a diagnosis. In actuality, what they do is help us refine our diagnostic skills and identify similarities biologically. Because remember, while this, you might say, is a social problem, my colleagues in America also often call child abuse a social problem. It is a public health and biomedical problem. And so we need to keep that in mind that we have science to do for diagnosis, we have science to do for testing, and we have science to learn from because science is ever-changing as we study things and learn more about them. It does, in the third section, though, turn to my favorite area, prevention. Many of us in the field treat cases, and we all say to ourselves, no matter what our training is, no matter what our medical bent is, if we're physicians, if we're nurses, if we're allied health professionals, everyone comes to me at the end of the day and says, what could we have done to prevent this from happening? Maybe that could have been better identification in the hospital, a little bit of what we just talked about, but also could it have been that the family had identifiable risks? Maybe they talked to us before. There's an article by Edwards and colleagues in here, which is fantastic as a systematic review on the confessions about what families tell us actually happened and how things, again, are more similar than not. But then you have to think about what are the things we can do as professionals, other than better identification, other than just better identification of families in need, if you will, or risk factors among certain families. 
what can we do globally, universal or primary prevention perhaps? What can we do for those higher risk families? And the next two articles talking about programs, one entitled Take Five, which comes out of a Yale, Kirsten Bechtel and colleagues looking at the effects of that program. And another called The Period of Purple Crying being studied in Texas, again in the United States. How do those programs help us how do they help families to understand how to respond to children who cry? Do they actually decrease the number of cases? And I think you're going to have to read these articles to get excited and to see what they found. I'm not going to give away all the answers here. They're going to leave a little bit of drama at the end. But let me tell you that there is hope for prevention and there definitely is hope for us because as we start to look at this, you start to see what you can do. And the third article next section by Vera Clemens and her colleagues looked at families with adverse childhood experiences, other children or that child. And unfortunately, we start to see that parents have difficulty, not just as a, a single thing in caring for their infant, but as a more global thing, because as the number of ACEs increase, then unfortunately, the parenting issues also become more apparent. So there's a lot of great stuff in here as you look through it. And I could go on and on about this, but I'll, I'll turn it over to our next presenter. Thanks very much for those sort of enticing morsels. I, um, I, I like your emphasis on, on public health, seeing this as a, actually a big public health issue, but also on prevention. That's really what we want to get to is, is how can we stop these devastating events happening in the first place. And, and that sort of brings us back perhaps to some of the research. Now, Gabby, in the editorial, you commented that undertaking research on abusive head trauma presents a distinct set of challenges. Do you want to explain what some of those challenges are and perhaps how we can approach them in, in tackling them? Yes, this area of research is fraught with challenges, mainly because uh, as a public health problem, it's also a, a hidden problem that is uh, marked by rather late discovery and the whole area of practice uh, child abuse pediatrics in the United States and serious case review in the UK is rather new. Even the discovery, if you will, and the publications and uh, the medical literature are maybe 60, 70 years old. It's largely been a hidden problem, although it's, of course, always existed. And when you look at it as an international public health problem, you see how the different systems deal with it in, in different ways. And one of the things that maybe is not appreciated enough is, for instance, the need to report to Child Protective Services, the social welfare system, and abusive head trauma often engages the criminal justice system. And so these are very complex parts of society. And we as clinicians on the front line have different thresholds for reporting in the different countries, in the different settings that we work. And likewise, the uh, service data that we register in our care differs from country to country, different diagnostic systems and diagnostic settings. So comparing across country is a, is a challenge. And then in its nature, abusive head trauma on, on a clinical front is challenging because you know, we're trained to rely on the carer's history, especially when it comes to the care of the youngest children. And in this case, we can't rely as the carers obfuscate or the history is uh, not something that we can rely on 
so the reluctance to uh, confront and to make a diagnosis is something that individual clinicians need to overcome and uh, teams and systems need to overcome. So it requires that we work uh, systematically, that we have protocols. Now we're seeing the emergence of clinical prediction rules that allow us to work more systematically and uh, perhaps also mitigate some of the inherent biases we may have on caring for uh, families that come from disadvantaged conditions. So these are challenges that we are, if I may reflect, that we're beginning to address, we're beginning to see, but there's much more we can do. One way is to publish more, to see more articles like that will be presented on Wednesday, but also to look forward. Like in Europe, we're, we're just beginning to see efforts to develop networks of uh, researchers and advocates across European countries. I still count the UK as, as one. <laughs> but to examine how we can bring in systems such as you've developed in the UK with under your safeguarding protocols, systematically doing child death review and uh, serious case reviews need to be done more harmoniously across uh, different countries and settings. Thank you, Gabby. Some really important stuff there. And, and it is challenging, but as you said, it sort of perhaps brings some, some hope for change and for progress and so on. And as we've mentioned, we decided when we saw the quality of some of the research coming in for this special issue, that it would be a really good opportunity to hold a conference. And one of the unexpected benefits of, of this whole lockdown period has been a recognition that actually you can do something like this on a virtual platform. And so it's a new thing for us to launch into a virtual conference, but I think it's going to be a really exciting day. So if you are able to join us on Wednesday, August the 5th, that would be really great. We'll be bringing together some of the researchers for the special issue. So our conference on Wednesday is going to be a great time. It's free to members and just £30 for non-members to join us for the conference. Bookings are still open, so do go to our website, childprotectionprofessionals.org.uk, to book your place. I'm certainly looking forward to the virtual conference, and I would guess both of you two are as well. Can I ask perhaps you both just to... Briefly, say perhaps one thing that you're particularly looking forward to in this conference. Well, it's a, I guess personally, it's uh, going to be very gratifying to be gathered, at least virtually, with the researchers, the investigators who have worked so hard. And I'm sure some of our reviewers who have also contributed an enormous amount of effort in making this a quality product. So that will be the most exciting thing. Thank you. And how about you, Vince? I'm very excited to be part of this because I'm actually looking forward to seeing the presenters and how they talk about their various sample populations as well as their methodology and how that all comes together We've been really tight with them in not letting them spend too much time on this. And we're going to make them give us important information that's going to be fascinating, both to them, to me as a methodologist, but I'm also excited by our audience. And I'm looking forward to the questions and the conversations that will happen and where those people are coming from. 
in the countries that have submitted articles as well as other countries and continents across the world. That's wonderful. Yeah, and certainly something I'm looking forward to is, is that international networking, getting ideas together, seeing what comes out of that. I'd like to return perhaps to some of the distinct challenges in relation to both research and practice around abuse of head trauma, and also to look ahead a bit as we try to take things forward. And I noted in the conclusion to the editorial, you state that like pandemics, poverty and violence, abusive head trauma can be identified, treated and prevented, and its existence cannot be denied. Interesting concept there. But yeah, we are in the midst of of this pandemic. And I know people have had concerns about the impact of that on families, particularly where there are other stresses present. Gabby, I I think you've been giving this a bit of thought as well, haven't you, into terms of, well, what does this mean in relation to head trauma as well? Well, yes, at the outset, we, of course, had no way of knowing what would transpire when we've been working with this project. But we know from some excellent research, Dr. Rachel Berger in the U.S. and a network of child abuse pediatricians have examined the epidemiology of abusive head trauma in the wake of the economic downturn of 2008 in the United States and have demonstrated a worrisome association of economic downturn and increasing incidence of head trauma. And I know there's been a lot of concern about domestic violence and child maltreatment in the wake of the the current pandemic. It is something timely that we should be concerned about, and we should focus on strategies for studying the incidents and also knowing what we know and working systematically to detect and to ultimately prevent cases of abusive head trauma. Yeah, thank you. Um, Certainly uh, there are concerns there. I think it's perhaps too early to tell whether there has been any real increase in the incidents, but, but I think there are very real concerns about the stresses on families and also about how agencies and services are able to respond to this. But there are also signs of hope. There are challenges, but there's hope as well. And and you mentioned some things earlier, Gabby. What about you, Vince? As you look forward, what gives you hope in the face of the awful reality of abuse of head trauma? What clearly makes me feel that we have hope and that we can change things is realizing that while, for example, this pandemic has caused many families to be locked down to not go out of the house. While we may be seeing more cases in certain jurisdictions or certain places of abusive head trauma, I'm also getting the sense that parents are learning more about their children. You know, their child is with them during the day. They start to realize this person is a person. Perhaps empathy is the term, understanding child development, uh, realizing that there are ways to raise children that perhaps they didn't have to use before because their time was limited, their working out of the house prevented them from having such caring responsibilities. I really think that while we're going to say probably the next special issue for you, Dr. Seibotham, in about a year or two, will be the effects of the pandemic on child maltreatment, but in specifically, you know, how do parents approach their children differently? And I, I have hope that The knowledge that we've gained in abusive head trauma, some of the articles in this particular issue, 
but also in the field in general, will teach us how to work with families to do a better job understanding their children and realizing that they need to react differently, they need different parenting skills. And this will affect not just abusive head trauma, but child maltreatment in general. I'm usually a positive guy. I think, you know, my experience with this disease, which I call a disease because 20 years ago, I was trying to prevent this disease in our newborn nurseries in Michigan and trying to do this. We could make a dent in this a little bit using some of these parenting educational programs. But I think now we know a lot more. And I think it behooves all of us, not just the child abuse doctors, not just the people who, you know, see the the bad cases, but everyone who cares for children, uh, both general pediatricians, but all the professionals, medical, nursing, and otherwise, and those people in our community who help us to devise these programs, to implement these programs, the child death review teams, the case fatality teams, the special review teams, whatever you want to call it. All those people, I think, are learning that we can make a difference. So I, I do have hope. Thank you. That's, that's a really positive note to draw this to a close on. And I think that that whole emphasis that this isn't just a responsibility of a few specialist pediatricians, but actually it's a community issue. It's something that all of us as professionals working with children and families, as people from the third sector voluntary organizations, people in the community generally, we can all do little bits to look at the support that we give the preventive efforts that, that we've spoken about, and so on, and, and to increase our understanding of this hugely important issue. So really would encourage you, if you're listening, to think about joining us on our virtual conference on August the 5th, but also to take a look at the special issue, read some of the research there, and think about and reflect on, okay, what does this mean for me in my practice What perhaps can I do to work with children and families to prevent this kind of issue, to support families where there are stresses and to work with these children? So I'd like to just thank both of you, Vince and Gabby, for joining me today. I think this has been a really encouraging and exciting conversation and bodes well for for the quality of discussion and interaction that we'll have on Wednesday. Thank you both very much. Thank you for listening to the AOCPP's podcast. If there are any specific topics you want discussed in future episodes, email us at hello at aocpp.org.uk. And if you would like more information about the Association of Child Protection Professionals, including the free membership trial, then visit our website at childprotectionprofessionals.org.uk. Thank you.